This is day six of the 2019 Idlewild Bible School. Our first period teacher is Brother Dennis Bevins. His general subject is John, letters from the disciple whom Jesus loved. Today's topic is walk in truth. Brother Dennis. Well, good morning. Good morning. I wanted to start this morning by again saying thank you from both Tiffany and myself and our whole family. Thank you for the opportunity to come and speak with you this week. Thank you sincerely for the invitation to be part of this camp. It's been a really great week around the Word of God, and we appreciate all the kind words and seeing the people that we haven't seen in a few years. It's just nice to have that feeling as we go back down the mountain. I wanted to go back to a couple comments I made yesterday that perhaps lacked the clarity that I thought it did. Um, and based on some of the comments I got afterwards, okay, so I, I got it. It wasn't as clear as I thought. So it might be a good introduction to this class today anyhow. And that is, first, when we made the reference to the high priest and having the blood put on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe, that really is a, a very, there's a lot of things that can come out of that. But the simple point I was trying to drive home is that we cleanse our hearing, the work of our hands and our walk. And so the right side is the side of strength. That's why the, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. So if us working our way towards the kingdom can make sure that we have purified through the blood of Christ the things we hear, the things we do, and the way we walk, we are following that Old Testament model that was pointing towards Jesus who did that in perfection. Another thing that I said that got a little bit of attention was when I put the picture of the phone on the screen. Um, and I want to make sure I'm not saying that abstain from using phones and all phones and iPads are evil. Uh, there's a lot of things that wouldn't happen in our life if we didn't have the electronic devices. Nothing wrong with that, content notwithstanding. So I'll put the asterisk there. But if it's being used in an appropriate manner, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem becomes when it's the priority. So it's one thing to enjoy catching up with your friends on Facebook or whatever, and that's a very valuable tool. It's another thing to do that instead of your readings. So if we've got our priorities straight and we're spending time sharpening our skills and understanding God's Word through reading and personal study, there's no realistic expectation that that's a 15 to 20 hour a day commitment. But if it's if we have our waking hours and we can't squeeze in time for God, it's a top opportunity to look at priorities. And I know from my own personal life that it's very easy to get on your phone or on your computer and before you know it, there's hours have passed and you really didn't finish anything. So the purpose was really prioritization, not necessarily the existence of or the use for. So hopefully that's a little more clear than I said yesterday. We've spent the last few days talking about intimately knowing our God and His Word, living His love so that we might dwell or tabernacle with Him and His Son for eternity. And that's probably the most recurring statement that you've heard in this week. It requires us doing things God's way, not just looking or acting the part, but leaving the world behind and serving the body in sincerity and love. So this morning, we're going to focus on the second and third letters, which were to individuals. Uh, one to an unnamed sister that most certainly knew the lessons from the first epistle, but had failed to apply it in a very specific way. And the other to a well-beloved and named brother, Gaius. 
These two letters are very different, but they are built on the same concept because they both are offshoots of the first epistle. So let's hone in on 2 John now. We must know and do, and that was a phrase that came up earlier in the week, know and do. But that starts with ecclesial life. We know and do, and then the opportunity to work together starts first at the household of faith. The only way we can truly show the love, uh, our love to Christ is to show love to each other. Uh, love, in a spiritual sense, requires a common understanding of the truth. H.P. Uh, Mansfield was quoted as saying, true love cannot be manifested where the truth is absent. And I like that phrase. So before we look at the verses in this short letter, I want to make something very clear so that we don't miss the forest as we're looking at the trees. Um, I'm not saying that we should not make any effort at all to help the homeless or, or somebody with a meal when they're hungry. I'm not saying we shouldn't give to charities that might be close to our heart, whether it's cancer research or heart disease or whatever it is. Part of being a decent human being is helping other people. And Jesus himself exhorts us to represent him to the world around us. So those are all well and good. However, they cannot and do not replace service to the ecclesial body. It can be supplemental to and should be supplemental to, but it is not instead of. John gets very personal in this letter, and I think it's been recorded for our learning because it's something we all are naturally inclined to do. We naturally are inclined to do what feels right, and sometimes that's harder as it gets closer, specifically when it's to our own individual and natural family. So let's begin by looking at the first verse. The elder unto the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also they that have known the truth. So the elder, he's obviously referring to himself. This is John himself, and he's talking, kind of extending that concept of the little children, only now it's not plural, it's, it's specific to one. The word elect is translated chosen in that famous phrase, many are called, few are chosen. The word lady he uses is actually from the root word kyrios, which is the word translated Lord in the Greek, in the Greek Testament. It's used in verse 3, for example. But this is the feminine form of that word. It's only used twice in the New Testament, here and verse 5, so it's a, a word specific to her. The love word, agapeo, the verb form of agape, and this known word is intimate. So when we put it together, this is a very quick but important introduction. He's calling her chosen. He refers to her as Lord. He acknowledges her self-sacrificing love and her reputation in the ecclesia. And it's high praise. It's a critical lesson to us because, well, we know the letter's not all positive, but he's going to start it that way and he's going to end it that way. And that's a good thing for us. If we jump in and there's a problem and we skip the niceties and jump right to the problem, most of the time the problem we're trying to address doesn't get addressed because nobody's remembered it. All they've remembered is how rude you were. So by starting with the positive that there really is more good than bad, let's focus on the good, address the negative, it needs to be addressed, and then let's go back to the positiveness of our hope. Um, I made a reference earlier in the week to be transformed. I think this is also in the first uh, volume where it talks about using the Word of God as a sword. 
So do we use it as a surgeon or an executioner? What we're seeing John do now is surgically uh, work in the life of a sister who needs to make a change to the saving of herself specifically and perhaps her family. Verse 2, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. So obvious connection to the first letter, that we would dwell or tabernacle forever. That's the word aeon, to the end of the age, literally. So he's building on this tabernacle theme. Grace be with you, mercy and peace, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. So we've got divine favor, forgiveness and kindness, unity and fellowship. The only source of that is truth and agape love. Now, that word of thy children, the RSV adds a significant word to it. It says that I found some of thy children walking in the truth, which notes that part of her brood is walking in the truth, tells us, and given the direction of the rest of this letter, that some of them are not which is a way for every one of us, every parent in the meeting, can now relate to this letter to some degree because some of her children have followed the truth and some of them have not. Perhaps they were and they left. The sad reality is though all of us want our children to walk with us towards the kingdom, it's oftentimes, and I shouldn't say oftentimes, sometimes it is not the case even though we come after it with prayer. But that makes it relevant because this sister can relate to both sides. The sister that can relate to the children that follow and the sister that can relate to the children who have left. It makes her highly relatable to us. So I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. So he's going to get to the point pretty quick. Short letter. This is that agapeo love, self-sacrificing love in action, but he's noting it that it has to be reciprocal. It's not a one-sided thing. It's not self-sacrificing love to someone. It's self-sacrificing love showing the love of God to someone who can self-sacrifice and show their love to God through you. It requires reciprocation, which is the purpose of ecclesial life. The exposition of love is not new but it applies directly to the ecclesia. And if we mistakenly believe that acts of kindness and hospitality to unbelievers, including in this case, her unbelieving family, it cannot be a replacement for the reciprocal love and working in the ecclesia with God's people. Now, it's something academically, it's easy to identify, but it's hard to do. Our natural inclination drives us to our natural family. We are all wired that way. So we have to override that to make sure that the ecclesia comes first. That doesn't mean family never. Oftentimes that relationship, even if it's a friendship, not a family member, gives them an opportunity to come back because they can see the love. So I want to make sure we retain that love, but that the priorities must be to the household of faith first. And he's going to build on that in just a couple of verses. Jesus said it this way. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's kind of harsh in the context, if you will, but I think it's important. 
True love is respect and obedience to the commands of God. We have to know and then do. So let's look at verse 6. This is love, that you walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. So the definition of love is to walk in truth. Not acts of kindness, but walking in truth. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So it's a direct contrast to verse 6. Walking the truth versus being a deceiver that's in the world. The, the word deceiver in the Greek, actually deceiver is not what you and I might think of it in, the ter- in that sense. In the Greek it means wandering, roving, and leading to error. So not saying deceiver is wrong, but picture the wanderer that's going the wrong direction. One is walking God's way, the other is wandering towards error. These wanderers had entered into the world as opposed to coming from it with no influence of the truth. And that's why they are called antichrist, because they have turned against Christ. So so read that again. Who confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. They've entered the world, which suggests that they were not part of it at one point. Not only must they walk in the truth to exhibit true love, but they must understand the truth so they do not wander towards the world, which in effect is denying Jesus by the lifestyle they live. Verse 8, look to yourselves that you lose not the things which you have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. In the RSV, we is you, that you lose not the things which you have wrought. It's a little more directed because it's not a generic letter to a generic population. It's a specific letter to a specific sister, a lesson being learned that can be applied generically to all of us. The word lose is a little more harsh in the literal Greek. It's to destroy fully. So it's not just, I lost it. Oh, there it is. It's utter destruction. And here's where it's hard on our natural inclination. It's easy to deceive ourselves, especially when it comes to family. And if we're not careful, we can lose our salvation by that self-deception. So if indeed these children are already lost, she is jeopardizing her own hope and her own reward if she is chasing after them. Now the best way to lead our lost children, or really anyone who ever leaves for that matter, is to show them the way and not chase them their way. It's to show them the love and the right walk, but not to chase them where they're going. The hard question we have to ask that becomes harder when it's a family member, in honesty, is who is leading who? And if I'm always chasing somebody who's leading away from God, I am no longer leading on behalf of God. I may be loving, but I have misplaced the love. Again, easy for us to do. It was said earlier this week that how we respond to our failure is far more important than our actual failure, and this indeed falls into that same category. For whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both Father and the Son. We talked a little bit about Matthew 18 yesterday. 
That is love. It's loving to help address a concern before it gets bigger, but to address it one-on-one and escalate only when necessary and when love is present. The RSV renders it this way. Anyone that goes ahead and abides not, taking the transgression word completely out of it altogether, because it's really not about us being evil. It's not about the person that left being evil. It's about them choosing to abide outside the camp. And if we do not dwell in the doctrine of truth, then then we become godless, because he is not the one governing our life. So we want to make sure that we put value on being within the camp, because that place within the camp is where hope is. Outside the camp, there may be good things going on. Maybe they have good Christian values, or they're not doing something implicitly wrong. But if they are outside the camp, they have become a godless person. Now, relating to the Christian world at large is easier to do for sure, but we have to recognize this is written to a sister in the truth that John had high respect for. He that abides in truth has the Father and the Son. Very good reference to being tabernacled together. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not in your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Quite direct, perhaps even harsh, given we know he's talking about some of her wandering children. Godspeed is an old English slang term. The word God is not in the text. It, it really means to rejoice or to be glad. In fact, the word your is not in the original either. The RSV renders it as the, that uh, receive him not into the house, which is better given the context. He's not saying non-believers need to be shunned and kept on the porch. That's not the point but we don't bid them rejoicing. It is one thing to ask God to bless their efforts back towards the truth and into the camp. That's a good thing to do. It's healthy. It's even something we should do on a recurring basis. However, it is entirely another thing to ask God to bless their efforts as they wander away from Him. God has always, always, always put a premium on truth, and so should we. It must remain the hallmark of our community so that if we continue to be a people whose nose is in the Word, that we're reading and studying and getting closer to our God academically and then letting that academic knowledge live through us. Because if it stays academic only, it is useless. It's trivia. But if it changes who we are and makes us more like the Son, glorifying the Father, that's the purpose of all reading and study. So hold that concept for just another verse. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak to you face to face, that our joy may be full. So she would have to share the responsibility for the harm caused by wandering towards false doctrine. We all must put the truth in doctrine and appreciate God's word first especially in these last days. Now, when he talks about things with paper and ink, I have a personal story that I think of every time I read that verse. And you may relate to this to some degree. But I have ruined a friendship in email. Maybe you have too. Where you said something that was intended to be funny, but it was not read as though it was intended to be funny, and it was read as highly insulting. What's worse is the person I sent it to didn't tell me they were insulted. I had to figure it out. 
and I'm not the, spar- the brightest star in the sky. It took me a couple years to figure out I had ruined this relationship. I learned a very valuable lesson, and any of you who get emails from me can see this lesson, that I put little happy faces in my emails all the time, even if I'm writing them to my boss, so that if I think it's supposed to be happy, you know I'm intending to be happy. So it's sad, but it's true. And, and what a travesty. It was a really close friend. Um, and we're still friends today. It's not that we didn't get past it, but that relationship's never the same. It can't be. I hurt the guy's feelings, and he went through a very difficult time. And for two years, where I would have been the person he came to first, I was a person he avoided because I had offended him that harshly. I don't feel good about that. My guess is I'm not the only one that's done it. I wish I had understood what John was saying then. Perhaps I would have been better about not putting that in writing and having that conversation face to face. John is the last of the living apostles. This personal visit would have been very special. It's a sign of his respect for her as well. He, in this letter, is not beating her up. He's not slapping her around. He's trying to correct an error that she probably does not see because he wants to hide a multitude of sins by her turning back to the ways of truth. The same model that he was talking about in that first letter, the model built on Matthew chapter 18. To the children of thy elect sister, greet excuse me, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. This is a bookend. It started with the ecclesial family, it ends with the ecclesial family. In fact, Amen is not in the text or in the RSV. The conversation's not over. The, the pen and paper part is. He's going to follow it up with a f- personal visit. So we remember the fourth thing that Jesus said from the tree on Monday, the principle of adoption, the concept of taking care of the ecclesia in its darkest hour for his sake and in his absence. Sadly, the world will only get darker as we see his return approaching. The opportunity to work together and stand together in the truth that we might in some way show each other the love that will bring us to the kingdom is only going to get harder as the day approaches. Now we truly long for a day when the truth is found in its proper place and where the body is served in love so that when our master returns, he finds us a people watching, waiting, learning, growing, and demonstrating the love of the Father to each of us uh, reciprocally. That makes us a people focused on his word and his family, which is truly the only way we can dwell, or as we've been saying, tabernacle with the Father and the Son forever. So let's shift gears to the third letter with some of our remaining time. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So, We have a similar introduction. He certainly identifies himself as the same way, but here he chooses to give us the name, not just of this person, but of a problem person in the meeting in a few verses. I can't tell you exactly why he chooses to name this one and not the other, other than I would think it may have been a little harsh to have that sister's name known, but by the description of her, anyone who knew that ecclesia probably could have figured it out. That's my best guess. I couldn't say for sure, but that's what my my thoughts would be. It is interesting, however, that Gaius' name means Lord. So there's a very similar connection. 
It's a name of a Latin origin, so it's likely that he was Roman by descent. His name appears twice in the Acts and twice in letters by Paul, but that was likely a different person than the one that John is writing to. So we're talking about a person we know very little about other than his name. But we know that he was loved by John because that's told us in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 11. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. The word health, that be in health, is the word translated whole in Luke 5 and 31, as well as the word sound four times by Paul in the context of having sound doctrine, so that thou mayest prosper and be whole or be sound, even as thy life prospers. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Here he is being rendered as a son. In verse 5, the RSV says, it is a loyal thing you do when you render any service to the brethren. Colossians 3 and 23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So the one thing he counsels the sister on to be careful, he is praising the brother on that he is doing this well. So we get both a positive and a negative example. Now, the stranger's word at the end of verse 5 does not necessarily mean outsiders. That word is also translated host elsewhere. Verse 6 suggests that they are inside the meeting. So it might be someone who was a member, but not personally known to him. And that is easy to do. We come to a Bible school and we know a lot of people, but there's always some that we do not know. And they may be strangers to us, though they are members in the household and they are part of the host. And so here's the one question that might come to our minds as we look at that as brethren and then an after comment to strangers. How do we treat people in the ecclesia that are strange to us? This is one thing that we all academically can answer, but I find this to be a place that our community is just not very self-aware a lot of times. If you really want to know how hard it is to fit into the cliques that exist in all of our meetings, just ask someone that came from the outside to candidly answer you. But do not ask this question if you do not want to know the answer. It is hard for someone coming into the meeting to penetrate 30-year relationships. And that's natural. It just is. But pretending that's not hard, that's not fair. So we want to be careful that we are self-aware that when people are strange to us, even though they're part of the host, that we let them feel the love of God in our presence. No, it cannot be the same as the relationship that's been going on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's impossible. Time is required for that to happen. But demonstrating the love that allows a relationship to grow so that it's a relationship they want to have with someone else, whether or not it's you, that's what's at stake. We're representing the Father, showing His love, reflecting His glory. Verse 6, which have borne witness of the charity, that's that word agape again, before the ecclesia, whom if thou bring forward on the journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. 
We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Uh, the RSV in, for the section in red reads, journey as befits God's service. The exhortation is to strengthen Gaius in view of the bitter hostility he received that we're going to look at in the ver very next verse. I wrote unto the Ecclesia, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. This letter referred to is lost to history. We don't have the letter that he's making reference to. But evidently, it was not very well received because it challenged the authority of someone. And that's, that, that pricks on the pride of any person. Whenever somebody challenges us, our natural inclination is to stand up and, and push back. Matter of fact, if, if you would look at the person next to you right now, if you're in, don't get up, but if there's somebody right next to you, put your hands like this. I know this is hard. I'm going to make you move. Yep, on each other's hands, hand to hand. Now, whoever is on the left, please start pushing. Okay, you can stop now. Did anybody on the right start pushing back? Did everybody on the, nobody fell over, so that suggests that somebody on the right did not, that didn't just surrender. Our natural response when people push is to push back. So by questioning the authority of Diotrephes, he is, he's triggered a natural response in pushing back, especially when he's known, at least by John, as wanting to be preeminent. In contrast to the praise heaped on Gaius, here Diotrephes hurt the development of the Ecclesia. Even though he may have been sound doctrinally, we absolutely need to have a platform of sound doctrine, but it needs to influence our behavior and our ego. We cannot let right doctrine make us arrogant. It must be tempered with his love for us to dwell with the Father. Now, Diotrephes is a name that means nourished by Jove. Okay, so what is that? Well, Jove is the original name that became the Roman god Jupiter. Guess what Greek god was renamed Jupiter? Zeus. Now, I suppose it might be hard to be a bit arrogant when your name means nourished by a powerful god. Remember the slide we talked about yesterday regarding the false doctrine of the Trinity? That crept into this class a couple times. Well, there he is, Zeus, as high as you can be in this pantheon. He became Jupiter. Then that one, as we got to the Christian mythology, becomes God. We, obviously, we've talked about that a little bit. I don't want to beat it up anymore. Just a reminder that it's up to us to read and study so that we are not caught off guard. That's the purpose of this, so that we do not stray and let our egos replace the sound doctrine of the truth. Verse 10. Wherefore I come, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he hath done, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he receive himself the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the ecclesia. The, the prating against, that's the only time this is used in the Greek in the New Testament, and it means to utter nonsense, to utter nonsense with malicious words. Now, malicious is the word normally translated evil. So you put that together, uttering nonsense with evil words. 
Matthew 18, we've talked about a few times. And of course, it does end in disfellowship. If all other practices in sincerity and love fail, that is the last alternative that we are told to, and it's sanctioned by Jesus. But it has to be done in love for it to be scripturally sanctioned. The purpose is to save the offending brother or sister and get them back into the camp and walking the way to the, word, to the Lord. It is not to preserve the truth. It's not to purify an assembly or whatever other terminology you may have heard or said in times past. The purpose is it must be done out of love for the sake of the lost. That's what has to be the driving principle. So this influential and arrogant brother had lost sight of what really mattered in ecclesial life. What really matters in ecclesial life is the ecclesia. Verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now, this word follow in the RSV is imitate, to imitate not that which is evil. So a, sam a sample is stated so that it can be learned and avoided. And sadly, it seems like a relevant example here nearly 2,000 years later. Uh, Psalm 34:18 says, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Another Old Testament theme that John has picked up. Because God manifestation must be both in word and deed. It's that concept of knowing and doing. Verse 12, Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth himself, yea, and he also bear record, we also bear record and know that our record is true. Now, Demetrius' name be, means belonging to Ceres, which is a Roman goddess of agriculture, not quite as daunting as powerful Zeus, certainly not as masculine. Perhaps names do matter. He was knowing as living up to the name that he had been called to be a part of, not the name he had been given at birth. And so he closes with some similar words that we saw from this last, the second uh, letter. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. Very similar closing. So I'd like to, with our extra time, I guess, we've got about 10 minutes. We've talked a lot about that very first slide we looked at on, the, uh, on our very first class. And that was the seven things that Jesus said from the tree and how we focused a little bit on, I think all of them we've touched. But one of them I thought might be worth looking at. This is that slide in case you're wondering, what slide is he talking about? One of them might be worth looking at just a little bit more. And that's the fifth one. I believe we gave it an honorable mention, but as such an important piece to this story, I thought if we had some time, and we do, we would take just a couple minutes and look at Psalm 22. Of course, this is the first half of that first verse when Jesus is quoting as, he dying, as he's dying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he gives us this reference point so you and I would know exactly what Jesus was thinking when he died. If we want to understand what was on his mind, he is telling us this is what he is thinking. And we find it as a blow-by-blow -blow description of the emotion and purpose of the crucifixion. 
When someone is crucified, we mentioned they actually suffocate. It's not blood loss. And so it makes sense that he didn't just quote the whole psalm, although I strongly believe he knew the whole psalm. And as we read the psalm, we won't today, but we can see amazing pieces of the glory it would end once the suffering was over. Verse 24 specifically removes doubt from the mind of the writer, which tells us he wasn't doubting that his father was there. He was not worried that he had been left behind. He was giving us a quotation so that we would know where his thoughts were. To see what it actually means, we're going to focus on a couple verses here. Let's look at verse 6. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Probably the most powerful verse in this psalm. The word worm is used 43 times in the, in the Hebrew, and 34 of them are translated scarlet. We'll find it used in the stories of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, and that is not a coincidence. A word study on this is definitely worth the effort. But this uh, tells us from Strong's that it was referring to a dye made by the dried body of a female worm, which I'm going to say it wrong, but ish. She would attach herself to a, dr- a tree, give birth, and then die. So it makes it a very highly relevant image to put in our minds as a representation of the Lord. Now, what's astounding is that when we look at Psalm 22, which we all have done, It is an interesting progression from Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Psalm 22 is very much focused on the past to you and I, the past of Jesus, the work that he has done, the work that was done on our behalf. Psalm 23 then is going to focus on Jesus' current work, what he is doing right now. And so as we look at this Psalm, we look for words that show us of his work today that He is our shepherd, that He leads us, He restores us, He's leading, He's comforting. These are the works that Jesus is doing right now. He's prepared a table. Goodness and mercy are at stake. And He closes with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord of God forever. The very end now shifts from current work to the future work tabernacling with the Father and the Son forever. And then we get to verse 24, verse Psalm 24, which is now the future state of Jesus, what we want to be a part of with Him and the Father. And so we'll cherry pick a little bit of this. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in His holy place? He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. When we see Psalm 22, 23, 24, we have the past, the present, and the future work of Jesus, culminating in tabernacling together with the Son as a family forever. So as we come to the close of our classes this week, I thought it would be fitting for us to look at the final words of Scripture, which are quoted, excuse me, which are penned by John. 
making it relevant to us today. Revelation 22, we'll pick up at verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you the, the things in the ecclesias. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Come, and let him that heareth say, Come. And he, he let him that is a thirst come. And whomsoever will, let him take of that water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of this book, if any man should add unto these things, God should add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.